I will uh, trumpet such truths as I know to you this evening on the topic of new thinking about church and state. I didn't expect there to be much new thinking for the simple reason that after the close of Vatican II and its celebration of its own work promulgating the decree Dignitatis Humanae on religious liberty, um, the hierarchy of the Catholic Church seemed to decline into a long night of self-satisfaction. It was all just wonderful. The council did us such a favor, it's all so good. And then, uh, well, the world should love us. Doesn't, but gee, that's funny, because we've been so nice and so liberal now and so good and, 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 yeah. So I didn't think that there would be much new reflecting on the matter of church and state, especially religious liberty. But blessedly, I was wrong. I picked up a copy of the Thomas from 2015 and found in there an article by Professor Thomas Pink. Professor Pink works in the, is in the uh, British Isles, but has been teaching recently at Mundelein Seminary and has a position to bring forward which reopens a number of aspects of the discussion of the famous Vatican II Declaration. Very quickly, Professor Pink holds, number one, that the correct analogy with which to understand the Catholic Church's relation to a Catholic state is that of the soul to the body. The soul to the body. I'll come back to that. It implies a lot. It's rich in patristic tradition and was most recently and thumpingly endorsed by Leo XIII in his great encyclical Immortale Dei, which was written long, long after the fall of medieval Christendom, and yet insists that the church must serve as the soul to the state. Now, for your background information, the second part of Professor Pink's work concerns a critique of Leo XIII and this body-soul analogy, stemming from the late, some would say great, Catholic philosopher Jacques Maritain, M-A-R-I-T-A-I-N, Maritain. Maritain denies this analogy and proposes a different one, namely that between nature and grace. Okay? Now just think about those two basic analogies which are in competition here. And... Um, 
let me uh, fill in some background for you. From the position of Leo XIII, there derived what we still know as the Christendom model of church and state relations, a model after which this modest college was named. And it says, I'm going to summarize it for you in, what is it, seven points, the Christendom model, what it says. Number one, temporal realities are not unpacking their own self-development. They're not naturally progressing, developing, all of that. They just are what they are. And therefore, point number two, the church can use them all for her own ends. This is called sacralization. Okay? The school system is not developing according to some giant evolutionary demand of its own but is free to be taken over by the church and turned into an instrumentality of evangelization, preparation of Christian civilization, and so on. Labor unions are fine things. Uh, they arose out of various nasty conditions in the 19th century. And some of them got nastier in the 20th, but never mind, many got better. And anyway, labor unions have been developing, but they're not developing on some great trajectory of their own. And so the church is free to take them over if she wants. Incline them in a Catholic direction. Turn them into modern versions, so to speak, of the guilds with which the church influenced trades and workers in past ages. Those are just two examples. And another such example, of course, is the government. Government is not undergoing some internal dynamic of its own evolving towards, I don't know what, peace and justice drivel. It's just a shabby human institution, and so the church is free to take it over, direct it, and turn it to some good. That doesn't mean annex it. In the Christendom model, the church never annexed the state never made the state anything like a province of the church. No, 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 no. The state had its own job, its own integrity, but its use, its political enactments were free to be incorporated into a program that I like to call sacralization. Making things sacred not only in the church, but also in the public order, putting up reminders everywhere of God and his holy will, and so on. All right, point number three in the Christendom model. This is not going to be surprising, and it certainly doesn't begin with Leo XIII. It begins with our Lord, Namely, point three, the church is the exclusive depository of salvation. Okay. Extra ecclesia nulla salus. Now, 
years, that has always needed some nuances. You can't just run with that baldly. But the point is that everyone who can get anywhere near salvation has to come at it through the influence or membership or whatever of the Catholic Church. And um, therefore, the Church is the center of the economy of salvation and hence the heart of history. The heart of history is that institution whereby God intends to realize principally his plans, his great plans for the human race. The central institution of history does not turn out to be the Austro-Hungarian Empire, though I like that. <laughs> and it doesn't even turn out to be the American Republic. It's the Catholic Church. That's the basket in which God has his eggs, so to speak, that are to hatch into a better future for mankind. You know what I mean? So when I heard this stuff already years ago, that America is mankind's last best hope, <laughs> pardon me, but I puked. <laughs> I'm not saying we're not a good hope. I'm not saying we're not a whole lot better than some places I could mention. But mankind's last best hope is also her first best hope, namely the Holy Roman Catholic Church. Is this clear, everybody? And so the church is the center of history, is the center of divine planning. And therefore, point four, therefore, the church must present herself as a powerful force over against the world. Okay? This power will spontaneously and inevitably find expression in the political arena. Okay? Okay? You cannot be a world historical player unless you have something like the power of a sovereign state, some capacity to act, some zone of influence, which is great and serious. serious. Otherwise, you're just not a player in history. And God intends his church to be a player. Is that all right? So the church has to have some power. Oh, I know. It's better, nicer to think of the church as the humble little sister servant of mankind. She just helps everybody get on with their revolutionary business or whatever they need to do. Yes, she sits in the corner and prays while the bayonets are wrapped. No, 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 no. The church has to be a player in her own right. That means she needs power in the political arena. Now then, point five. Christian participation in temporal tasks has more than one meaning, but here is the central one. It is to work for the direct and immediate benefit of the church. Don't tell me what all you're doing in politics if you're doing nothing for the direct and immediate benefit of the church. Okay? 
I know there are other things worth doing. Yeah, 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 of course. But if you are a Christian, and in that name you participate in the political order, this must be your central focus. What can I do to benefit immediately and directly the Catholic Church? So, point six, Christian politics will mean assisting the church in her evangelical mission and safeguarding the church's interests. Yeah. Assisting the church in her evangelical mission and safeguarding the church's interests. Okay. Like any player in history, the church has interests. Financial interests, political interests, human interests, yeah, and of course, supernatural interests, yes, of course. And we need to safeguard them. Okay. The church is not an armed organization. Unlike the body politic of Islam, so to speak, which was an army pretending to be a religion, the Catholic Church is not an armed organization. She cannot assert the power and influence she needs to have in the world against powerful enemies without access to clout and real influence. And I am mercifully old enough to remember a bit of how that influence worked. We didn't call out the Marines, but <laughs> back in the 50s, there would occasionally be a liberal legislator in the state of New York who would get to Albany and propose that we uh, legalize contraception or legalize certain forms of abortion or sterilization or something, okay? As soon as this became known, when the next election rolled around, yellow buses rolled up to parish doors all over the Archdiocese of New York. And people got on board and were taken to the polls. And that SOB never got to Albany again. Okay. That was Catholic politics. And by the way, it's one of the reasons why the situation was so, seemed so favorable to us in the United States in the late 50s. We had political clout. Even Hollywood was afraid of us. <laughs> The Legion of Decency put the thumbs down on a movie. Oh, yeah, it didn't make so much money. Oh, yeah. Uh -huh. Money in the hands of Catholic believers can and should translate into power in the hands of the church. Clear? Too cynical? I don't think so. Just realistic. Okay. I'm in, um, still in point six. 
and I graduate to point six A. <laughs> the church stands to the state as soul to body. What does that mean? We unpack that a little bit. The church is going to be what gives the state its specific difference. Okay. This is not just any sort of animalistic party house. The state is not just some socialist utopia. This is a Christian state because the Catholic Church is the soul of it. Okay. And what does the soul do with the members of the body? Hello, it uses them. Okay. The job of the body's instrumentalities is to serve the soul. You use your body and your money to achieve the ends your soul has understood to be good. Is this clear? Obvious? Yeah. Well, finally, the Christendom model fostered a close unity between faith and social life, okay? Whole neighborhoods were full of faith-based social interactions. Everything from parish raffles to parades with lovely idols, I mean, uh, sections of the saints. <laughs> <laughs> Just great stuff. And um, that led historically to the politics of anti-modernity, my favorite. In the 19th century, liberalism established not only here, but throughout more and more countries of Europe, was divorcing faith from social life. You wanted to have a party? Fine, have a secular party, but don't get God into it. Okay, And we resisted that sort of thing. We tried to uphold the institutions of Christendom, which had been profoundly social and sacral. Clear enough? Okay. Now then, do you see how Leo XIII's guiding principle, the body-soul analogy, gives the church a defining and directive authority vis-a-vis -vis the state. Not to replace the state, not to hold offices in the state, but to give instructions as well as suggestions to the state. Okay. Now, I'm sorry to say something that you already know, and that is that the politics of anti-modernity didn't work out very well. We had a wonderful restoration in the 1820s and 30s. Went downhill. The Holy Alliance went downhill. All kinds of nice things went downhill. And the world became more and more uh, liberalized and secular and so on. And of course, the uh, enormous social upheaval caused by the Industrial Revolution didn't help any. 
But there it was, plenty of social changes to upset the medieval agrarian order of things. And by the way, unlike some people around here, I am not an unreconstructed agrarian. <laughs> I have too much experience of what farm work is like. No, thank you. <laughs> but anyway. Um, <sighs> Maritain has a new view based on the failure of the politics of anti-modernity. And by the way, I'm happy to say that here at Christendom, we have a whole lot of people who are still neck deep in that politics. I have this every Monday night cigar group. Those guys are knee deep, neck deep in romantic reaction. <laughs> that's right. And that's, that's, that, that's, that's all to the good. You understand at least what was nice. But we cannot let our judgment of what was nice cloud our judgment of what we should be doing now, can we? And this is where Maritain came in in 1938. Jacques Maritain wasn't born that year by any means. He was already writing uh, philosophical works in the early 20s and uh, was a thoroughgoing convert to Thomism. He was a convert to the church, for that matter. Convert to Thomism and uh, wrote some wonderful early books, which I recommend to you. He wrote a book that he never allowed to be translated. So if you get a hold of the original, I've got an original. Here's something for you to do. It's in French. Easy to translate. It's called Antimodern. Anti-modern. How do you like that title? I wish I had time to work on that book. I don't expect to. I'm too busy with 15th century heroes. But um, think about it. Anyway, that's not his only good early book. But most of the others have been translated, like Three Reformers. Yeah. Anyway, Maritain did an about face in 1938. And published a book called integral humanism in which he set forth a new church state vision beginning with his rejection of Leo XIII's basic analogy he says the church does not stand to the state as soul to body but as grace stands to nature Ah, okay, so point one was, it's as grace stands to nature, but grace does not suppress or replace nature, and therefore a certain autonomy must be restored to the things of this world. They're not just around to be co-opted for the purposes of the gospel, they've got their own inherent, imminent development curves that they're all working on. And we have to respect that now. Remember, um, you, you all have had the experience of being in the state of grace, have you not? <laughs> yes, I hope so. You may have noticed that your body does not become 
an instrument of grace. Okay. Just because you have grace in your soul doesn't mean it works its way out through your fingertips <laughs> and uh, into your handiwork and so on. It, it, it doesn't work that way. Grace does not play to our souls the hylomorphic relationship, body to soul, soul to body, I mean. Clear? It's a very important relationship. It perfects us in some ways, but it's not hylomorphic. Okay, so we've got to restore some autonomy to the things of the world. Thank you, Maritain. Now what? He says, there is a now autonomous temporal order. Yeah, what about it? It has a task of its own. What is that task? Hello? It's to search for a society based upon justice, respect for the rights of others, and human brotherhood. Uh-huh. Justice, equality, brotherhood. Remember here, those words? Remember, that reminds you of anything? That's what human political society is for according to Maritain. And so, from now on, the meaning of the state will flow from these secular values and not from religion. Okay. So what specifies the state to be a good state? Nothing to do with God, nothing to do with Jesus got all to do with whether it promotes liberty and justice and freedom and elections and never mind what. Clear? But you're not bad. I'm not saying they're bad things. I just don't think they ought to go into the definition of a good state. Okay. Point three. Thanks to this new task, the temporal sphere is autonomous with respect to the ecclesiastical hierarchy. Okay? The hierarchy is about running the church, which is a fine thing from Maritime's point of view, great, great thing. But the church, but the state has its own business and its own finality and its own defining virtues. And bishops don't get to interfere with that. So, you know, if if if, if if the state, oh God forbid, if the state decides that the interests of brotherhood require sanctioning homosexual marriages, well, that's one way for brothers to get, never mind. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> if the state decides the interests of promoting brotherhood require the recognition of homosexual marriages, well then, the bishops can't say anything about it. They can't say, no, ah, 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 ah. No, indeed. Of course, that's a special case because Maritain had plenty of respect for the natural law. And he did expect that the state would continue to observe the precepts of the natural law. But we'll 
We'll get into that problem a little later on. For Maritime, I'm happy to say the church remains the center of the work of salvation. And he will even say that the creation of a just and democratic society is the means to achieve conditions favorable to the activity of the church. One began to see Maritanian ideas enter into mission theology. Gee, when I was a kid already, you could see this. It used to be that if you wanted to be a missionary, that was great. You, you went off and you preached the gospel to the, for, the, the poor benighted ones out there in fuzzy, fuzzy land. <laughs> you brought the gospel. That was treasure. That was, but, but all of a sudden, by the, time, by the time I got out of college, it wasn't nice to even approach the missionary task unless you were bringing medicine with you and clean water, and um, I don't know, what else? Modern contraptions to make life easier. How about air conditioning? I'm all for it. Let's air condition the rainforest. Great idea. <laughs> but that was supposed to achieve conditions favorable to the activity of the church, as if people couldn't get saved until they were decently well off in this world. So that's not my experience. I think when most people are decently well off in this world, they become a little bit deaf to the appeals of salvation. You know what I mean? Anyway, then he had some implications about lay action in the temporal sphere. And here, you know, Maritain's ideas did bear some fruit. Lay action in the temporal sphere can be distinguished into two kinds, official Catholic action in which you as lay people represent the church and are directly subject to the bishops. And then there is free Catholic initiative in which you may be inspired by the gospel, I hope you are, but you're acting on your own responsibility. Maritain was the first to emphasize that distinction and it was good as far as it went. But when you think about it, it becomes increasingly clear that what he wants us to do is band together as Christians to do secular things. Yeah. So we form a Christian Democratic Party. Uh-huh. Or we form a Christian labor union, etc. But we don't do so in order to restore Christendom. You ever meet an Italian Christian Democrat who wanted to restore Christendom? Huh? Sorry, no, that wasn't it. No. You became a Christian Democrat in order to do what other political parties did, what secular parties did, only better, with less corruption, less socialist bullying, less indebtedness to the mafia, maybe. <laughs> Although, never mind. <laughs> so in sum, Catholic political energies for Maritain should be used to create a secular political order. 
but will console ourselves by calling this secular order a, quote, new Christendom, unquote. Okay? Now then, along comes Vatican II. By the way, between Maritain's work in the, which started in 38 and then became big news in the 40s and the 50s, between that and Vatican II, there was another model of church-state relations that came around and was fostered by Yves Congar and was even more radical. And um, never mind about that. The point is it built on whatever mistakes were there in Maritain, got worse. And then came liberation theology and all sorts of thoroughly hideous things. But Vatican II did a very interesting thing. It ignored Maritain. It ignored the distinction of Plains model and affirmed a concept of religious liberty that was founded on the Catholic idea that religion is a transcendent good so that it lies outside the state's jurisdiction. If you don't recall the text of the decree Dignitatis Humanae, look it up. Why <coughs> is the state prevented from exercising coercive power in the realm of religion, people's exercise of their freedom in the religious area? Why, why is the state prevented there? Because, Vatican II says, Religion is a transcendent good. It's outside the state's jurisdiction. Okay. Along comes Professor Pink in 2015. And that's why I'm here entertaining you tonight. He comes along in 2015 and says, wait a minute. I got to read it. It's so good. I have to read it, and it'll ma it makes you think about this stuff in a brand new way. Where are we here? <laughs> yes. <clears throat> Religion, says Professor Pink, will only be publicly acknowledged as a good transcending state authority by those states that also publicly acknowledge the supernatural end. That is the truth of religion in supernatural form. But that requires the very state recognition of revealed truth that the Leonine model defended as an ideal and the prolonged secularization nowadays discourages. See, here's the deal. Okay? You have probably read the uh, treatises of one or another jurist, ethical philosopher, and whatever. And you will find that they all have nice things to say about religious freedom. But how do they understand religion? Is this the exercise of some special freedom? in some protected zone. No, 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 no. It's just that, see, 
there is a sort of a natural human right to a certain amount of freedom in association with other people. Like people get together and form clubs and uh, road trips and all kinds of stuff. Sporting leagues and so on, and that's, that's fine. And the state uh, allows that, but, but it also regulates. I mean, after all, people drive automobiles. And you may have noticed that our motoring around in automobiles is subject to a certain amount of state regulation. Okay? And, well, I don't think most of us oppose that in principle. I don't want to be driving on the road with a bunch of anarchists. <laughs> but on the other hand, you know, we, we can often debate about the merits of this or that particular regulation. Yes. Yearly inspections my foot. <laughs> so, but, but nobody denies that the state has the authority to regulate traffic. Okay? And regulate car clubs. And regulate hockey clubs. And so on and so on and so on. So why should the state not have a right to regulate religious associations? You're going to say, well, 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 uh, hey, the, the, the state can know that religion is a natural good. Yeah, it's, it's a, yeah, that's right. And so is travel. <laughs> so is locomotion. I suppose hockey's a natural good. I wouldn't know. <laughs> But, uh, you know, the state regulates everything else we do in pursuit of a natural good. Why shouldn't it regulate religion? Now you're looking at me as you, oh, you're going to, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute, that's a good point. It should, it should, it should. Caesar should have the, the, the power to regulate religion the way Caesar used to. Hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. The church explicitly teaches that that power of Caesar disappeared with the Incarnation. Because that is when the natural good of religion was raised to the supernatural order. Why is religion a transcendent good? Because it's been supernaturalized by divine revelation, by the Incarnation, so on. Yes? That's why the state has no proper jurisdiction here. And now do you see why there's a problem about making the state keep its hands off if it no longer believes in the supernatural good? Aha! Aha! The Catholic Church becomes just another club! Incense club! <laughs> Vestments club! Oh, very good, I'm sure. But that's not what keeps the state at bay. Okay? And we are finding this out. Hillary's America is already America, an America in which the notion of religious liberty has been secularized. It's no longer about the act exercise of a transcendent right in pursuit of a transcendent good above the whole natural order? Not at all. 
There's no, there's no exemption of churches on that ground. No. In Hillary's America, the church is just another form of association and anything that that association does that doesn't contribute to the respect that we all owe to each other needs to be regulated. Your church doesn't want to ordain lesbian pastoresses? All you are discriminatory, you are bigots, your church should be shut down, at least taxed. Just as if your restaurant doesn't want to serve black people, it deserves to be shut down or at least taxed. Right? And so we are going to have a liberal aggression against everything that makes Catholic morals distinctive. Okay? And our institutions will have no protection based on America's current understanding of the good of religion and religious liberty. Does everybody see? Yeah, it's pretty basic. So I think Pink is really onto something. I recommend you read his article. Really, really onto something that hasn't been talked about before. It's, it's a weakness that hasn't been discussed before uh, in the understanding of Vatican II. And so what Pink is ultimately calling for is a, a reform of current theology that takes the actual text of Vatican II and rips it out of the progressivist context invented by Maritain and his disciples and served in another way by John Courtney Murray. The architects of the documents had in their heads this progressivist ideology. Okay? No, because history is moving on, you know, and uh, the, the, the world is developing. We, we, we used to be just little primitive barbaric nations, but now we're big and grown up and mature. We have our own institutions and all that, and, and, and we don't need the church to boss us around anymore because we're all grown up and we're now, well, now we can regulate. Yes. Yes, now we can regulate. It's about power, isn't it? Okay. So anytime you are tempted to use your vote in such a way that it allows liberals to hold on to their power, I anathematize you. <laughs> In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.